morning, everybody. So here we are, once again, we were here just seven days ago uh, in the Advent season celebrating the Incarnation. We spent time looking at chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah and um, the glories that Isaiah had promised as he had foretold in the birth of this, this son who would bring glory to a place that uh, was dark and defeated and desolate and filled with gloom and anguish and misery. This morning, as we are now ending that kind of week in the middle of Christmas and New Year's, I wanted to take a look at Psalm 130. As we're on the eve of 2024, a new year begins. We all, maybe not all, many of us like to set goals and make plans for what this year is going to hold and what we'd like to see happen and where we'd like to see our lives head as the new year begins. But this week as I was preparing and, and thinking and wondering what to preach, as I've told you before, one-off sermons are always the hardest to do because it doesn't tell me what to do next whereas when we're in a book it does spend some time thinking about what to do this week this morning and so psalm 130 came to mind you may turn there as i uh, continue through but my thoughts are as we look into 2024 as we look into this new year as we look into what lies ahead it never hurts to remind ourselves of who we are to always who we are always to be. I think Psalm 130 has a way of doing that. The psalm we read this morning that I think Garrison read, Psalm 32 has a way of doing that, of giving us a footing upon which to stand, and that footing being our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Psalm 130 as we proceed, you may turn there. We are going to read it here in a moment. And let this, let this psalm be a reminder of who we are, who we've been, who we should be, who we want to be. Because I think that's really the heart of some of these psalms of penitence here. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What a psalm. You can almost just wrap it up right there. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are gracious. Lord, in bringing us here this morning to worship you alongside of brothers and sisters for your glory and for our good. Lord, let us always be reminded of this grace that you have given us, this mercy that you have shown us. For what hope do we have in life and death besides your son? Remind us of that this morning. Teach us this morning. May you be glorified this morning by the preaching of your word and by the shaping and renewing of our hearts and minds, Father. We pray these things in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so our sermon summary today. The thing I want you to take home with you, the, if you fall asleep now, if you tune out and ignore me or get upset, the thing I want you to know is something that I have taken from a confession, a fairly modern confession, but it is this, and this is what I want you to take home with you today regarding Psalm 130. It's a question and an answer from a catechism question is, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to take home from Psalm 130 today. If nothing else, what is our hope in life and death? That we are, not, we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Might remind you of the Getty song. It's a wonderful one. If not, go home and if you don't know it, go, go listen later. It's a, it's a beautiful song. What is our only hope in life and death? It is our God and our Savior. So as we get into Psalm 130 here, this is a song of ascents. You see it there written under the title that you might have above Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Now Psalms 120 to 136, 15 of them in total are these psalms of ascent. Now it's unclear what this actually means, as many things in the psalms are. We don't quite know for sure what a song of ascent is is there are two main guesses, two main theories as to what these songs of ascent are. The first one is this theory that it is linked to the Levites. And as the Levites climbed the 15 steps to the temple, they sang these psalms as they rose up the steps. That is one theory. Another theory is that it is linked to the pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the festivals that they celebrated. 
And as they approached and wandered and pilgrimaged towards Jerusalem for these religious festivals in their calendar year, they would sing these psalms as they ascended towards Jerusalem. Those are the two main guesses as to what a psalm of ascent is. No one really knows, and it doesn't really make much of a difference for us here now today in what we are doing. Of more importance, I think, is that this is one of seven penitential psalms. Penitential psalms. We read one earlier as well. There are seven of them. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. These are penitential psalms. They are psalms of lament. However, unlike other psalms of lament that are titled as such, psalms of lament are oftentimes lamenting over extrinsic things, things that have happened outside of oneself, the death of a village, the destruction of a kingdom, an attack from an enemy, the death of loved ones around us, these kind of things that happen to us but are external to our being. These penitential psalms deal directly with what is happening inside of the psalmist. What he is dealing with in his inmost parts, in his inmost being, in his soul, if you will, to use a term from this psalm. And in these penitential psalms, there are often themes of of confession and, and repentance, hence the name and I think, at least for me personally, this very could, could be only me, these, these penitential psalms are just, when you read them, they, they can just leave you speechless. They leave you feeling exactly how the psalmist is feeling. It's something that, something a good author does when you read their writing and you connect emotionally with their work, you know that that author has done their job. That author knows they have done their job. And that's, that's not the purpose. That's not what the psalmist is trying to do here. Don't get me wrong. He's not trying to pull emotions out of his readers. He is recording the challenges and struggles that he is feeling or she is feeling as they write these words. And these psalms of lament, these psalms of penitence, these psalms of repentance are often written by someone who has been so broken by their sin and their iniquity that they can't help but well up with this repentance. It's a beautiful psalm. And in this psalm, we're going to have four couplets, four parts. And, and the first one, this, this top part, this, it, it, it's really, uh, it, it's brokenness and gloom you you hear it as you read the text and we'll read them each individually here in a moment but verses one and two this brokenness this anguish this desperation verses three and four confessing and repenting verses five and six hoping and waiting These are all themes we somewhat discussed last week, hoping and waiting. And lastly, seven and eight, assurance of redemption. This psalm in seven short verses 
walks from desperation to assurance of redemption. And as I say earlier, as we try and find our footing of who we are going into 2024, is that not it? Brokenness and desperation to assurance of redemption. We know those feelings. We know brokenness and gloom. We know confession and repentance if we are believers. We know hope and waiting. And hopefully, we can know assurance of our redemption. So, Psalm 130, verses 1 to 2. Our first point this morning. In our current estate, our lives are often wrecked and damaged and broken because of sin. In our current estate, our lives are often wrecked with damage and brokenness because of our sin. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. Out of the grave. Out of Sheol. Out of the depths of the sea. Think of Jonah as he is thrown into the depths of the sea and he is eaten by the fish. He writes in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. You see these these themes of, of desperation are often followed in the scriptures by what? Praying to the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress. You hear, you hear the, the desperation. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, out of the grave. I cried. And you heard my voice. Meaning the Lord. For you cast me into the deep, into the depths into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, upon my, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see the depths which, with, which, which Jonah was crying out to the Lord as he is in Sheol, in the grave. 
As he was in the belly of the fish for three days, uh, a type and shadow of Christ in the grave. The psalmist has one foot in the grave. He knows nothing but desperation. And as with Jonah, Jonah was racked with, with, with desperation because of what his sin has caused him. You know the story of Jonah and what happens prior to Jonah 2 when he is called to go to Nineveh and he runs out of disobedience and he goes on the ship and the guys are like, storm comes and the sailors are like, we got a storm here, what's going on? And Jonah's like, it's me, just throw me overboard. It's my fault. They throw him in and he's swallowed. Because of his own sin and guilt, he is racked with brokenness, and he finds himself not just with one foot in Sheol, but his whole body in the grave. So it is with the psalmist, out of the depths. This isn't just a, a shallow grave here of a foot below. This is, he is deeply down in the grave. He is broken, and he is desperate, and there is nothing left for him to do. You see how precarious his situation is. And there is only one outcome unless there is divine intervention. And that only outcome, like Jonah, is death. And without this divine intervention that the psalmist calls for, there is nothing but death awaiting. And so, he petitions the Lord out of desperation. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. In my distress, O Lord, hear my cry. In my desperation, O Lord, hear my cry. Understanding that there is only one who can fix and mend his precarious situation. He does nothing else now but reach out to the Father. Is that not like us? Is that not like us? I don't know the events that happened prior to the psalmist being in such de desperation, but if I know anything about myself and I know anything about humanity, maybe this psalmist has tried to take steps to fix his problems up until this point. And he has found that his steps of fixing his own problems failed. And left him with one foot in the grave. And maybe, like us, the psalmist recognizes the, the sovereignty and the providence of the Lord who, to whom he is calling. Isn't there such comfort, comfort in the sovereignty and providence of the Lord? Think of it. The word sovereignty... Providence, providence the way he sovereignly orders all events from before time began. He knows. He knows that in our desperate, dark situation, who we are going to call and what we are going to do. He's going to know the events that lead up to our desperate and dark situation. He orders our steps and leads us to those places of darkness and desperation. But the good news is, unlike us, unlike what we don't know in our personal chaos, he does. He knows the outcome. 
He knows what tomorrow brings. Whether that's death, whether that's life, whether that's rags, whether that's riches, he knows and he has ordered all things for the good of those who have been called according to his purposes. You see, for those whom he has called, he has ordered these things for their good. It might not look like good in the midst of the chaos. But eternally, it will be. And that's easy to say. I, I am aware. I am aware that is easy to say. But as I said last week, we've all encountered our personal darknesses. We all know what the gloom and anguish of Zebulun and Naphtali was like as they were invaded. Maybe not exactly those situations, but we know darkness. Simon and Garfunkel, right? Is that, hello darkness, my old friend? We know. We know. But we also know that our God knows and ordered and knows what's next. And so the psalmist cries out, he demonstrates this understanding of desperation and that there is now only one place for him to turn. And he cries, Lord, hear me. Hear my cries, Lord. I am in the grave. Listen to my voice. I am in the depths of the sea and drowning. Listen to me. And note the change here from the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the use of Yahweh here in verse 1a to the use of L, lowercase o-r-d, the use of Adonai from 1a to 1b. The psalmist is crying out to God, Yahweh, the, the name that the, the Jews would not write down in full because of its holiness and because of the fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. To the use of Adonai, my Lord, a title. The psalmist here, as he cries out, recognizes as Jesus, my Lord and my God. He knows to whom he is crying out to. And this is a, this is a petition. As, as, a, as a slave may petition his master... As a servant may petition his boss, his, his, his master, this psalmist is petitioning to God as Lord, Adonai, my Lord, a title given to God. This is the relationship of a master and a servant here. And the psalmist is crying out to his master, to his Lord, and to his God. His pleas for mercy. His cries for mercy. This, this tells us here that this isn't, this isn't just a, a, a prayer for a need. He's not just going to the, to the spiritual bank and asking for something in return here. He, he's not just, just asking for a blessing. He's not just asking for, for not, I shouldn't say just, he's not, he's not asking for healing here. He's not going to the Lord to ask to get something in return. He is going to the Lord and asking for what? Hear my pleas for mercy. For mercy. Mercy is a term we often use. It's a term that fills our vocabulary and should fill our vocabulary. But 
Oftentimes, as we use these terms so regularly, the meaning gets lost and forgotten. So what does it mean that he's crying out for mercy? Mercy, the act of showing compassion to someone deserving punishment. That is what he's crying out for. The psalmist is crying out to the Lord for mercy. As one who deserves punishment, he is crying out for mercy, for compassion. You see, this psalmist here, I believe this psalmist is racked with sin. And it is his sin who has, that has consumed him. And it is his sin that is destroying him and pulling him down to the depths. And he is crying out for mercy as one who deserves punishment, looking for compassion. That is what the psalmist is doing here. He's racked with guilt. He knows what he has done. He knows what he deserves. And he's desperate because of what comes next. And so he cries out for compassion, for forgiveness. And what an example this is for us, yes? Many of us in here are believers. We know what sin does. We know our lives prior to the calling of Christ. We know the destruction that is caused. We can think of the friendships in the back of our minds that have been destroyed because of the sin. We know of marriages that have been destroyed because of sin. We know of families that have been pulled apart because of sin. We know these stories. We might have lived those stories. We know how sin has destroyed our relationship with others. We know how sin has destroyed our relationship with ourselves. How even as believers, we can become so twisted and tormented by our own guilt that we are tortured by it. There's a song, it's a popular music song, it's 21 Pilots, it's called Car Radio. I don't know if any of you know that song, it's not really a Christian song, but it's a song about a guy whose car radio gets stolen. And because his car radio is stolen, he doesn't go to replace it. He sits in silence in his vehicle, and he's tormented by his own thoughts. I have these thoughts, so often I ought to replace the slot with what I once bought because somebody stole my car radio, and now I just sit in silence. We know that feeling. The fear of being left alone with our own thoughts. We know that feeling. Sin does that. Leaves us to cry out from the depths. And finally, fully, ultimately our relationship with God is destroyed. If we are not believers, the greatest thing we have to deal with, our biggest problem is not what's going to happen next. Our biggest problem is where we stand with the Father. And you see, sin has destroyed that relationship. It's a sin is it's an act of cosmic treason. We discussed last week how God has created this whole planet. All of creation is His. 
And so he makes the rules. He decides. But we know ourselves. We know that we often want to be the one who decides. And that often means taking our own little kingdom and stealing it back in an act of cosmic treason to set up our own little kingdom in replace of, of one that the Lord has already put. And that leaves us racked and destroyed. And it leaves us in the depths of Sheol. And so what do we do? Not to get ahead of myself here, right? There are, I think, three courses of action. One, we can toil and strive. We can try to carry ourselves out of the grave. Have you ever seen a dead person get up out of his grave? No. But we can try. You can try. William Grimshaw, he's an old British-English pastor in Hayworth. Hayworth is the place where the Bronte sisters were. Their father was the, uh, the pastor of this parish just after William Grimshaw. William Grimshaw is friends with the Wesley brothers as they did their little tours around and did their itinerant preaching. They were buddies and the Wesley, the Wesley brothers went often to Hayworth. George Whitfield, another itinerant preacher who crossed the Atlantic, I don't know, 13 times or something, also was a friend of William Grimshaw of Hayworth. His biography is wonderful. But prior to becoming a believer, William Grimshaw, so often racked with guilt, would take a little journal notebook and he would cut the page in half. And on one half of the page, he would record all the good things he did for the day. And on the other half, he would record all the bad things he did for the day. And he would hope that the good side would outweigh the bad side. Daily. Thinking this was his ticket. This was what it took to claw himself up out of the grave of that Psalm 130 the psalmist is crying out from. But you and I know he learned that that is, that is no way. We can never do anything to work and merit our way up out of the grave and turn ourselves back to life. So toil and striving, one option. You can succumb. You can succumb. And just be like, eh, forget it. Forget it. I, I, I'm done. I'm not going to walk the Christian walk. I'm not going to listen to the words of Scripture. I'm not going to listen to what the pastors have to say. I'm not going to hear faithful teaching. It's much easier just to throw it all away and resign myself to this state. If any of you are Star Wars fans, kind of like the Sith Lords, right? The dark side. It's just easier to let it all go and succumb to the darkness and the brokenness. It's just easier that way. And so we walk away. However, as you and I both know, that leaves you in your grave. Make, 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 may, may make things easier for a time, but it leaves you in your grave, and who knows what darkness lies ahead in that estate. And lastly, we can seek the Lord as the psalmist does. You know the answer. You know the right answer of these three routes. I think there's only three routes available to us. You know the answer. I believe, what is it, um, Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, vile eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The only one who can give life when we have one foot in the grave, or spiritually speaking, our whole body and being in the grave. Dead, the only one who can bring life is our great Savior, is our God. And this leads to the next point here, which I've already spent much time going through. Our next point here, the, the, the next couplet Verses 3 and 4, point 2, confession and repentance, you see, are not just the suggested route. This isn't just something me and Michael would say, yeah, this is, a, this is a good idea. You know, take this road. This is good. This is a good option. This is, this is worth it. No, you see, this is uh, uh, confession and repentance are not merely suggestions, you see. They are the necessary route to redemption. Or they, I should say, they are necessary on the route to redemption. It's not, not something that is, meh, give or take, you do what you want. It's not that. It's not that at all. Right? This, 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 this psalmist is giving us a demonstration that he knows exactly who he is. Dead and broken. Racked in sin. He knows what he has done. We don't. He doesn't share it here. He knows what he's done, he has done. And he knows where he now turns. So look to the text here. If you, O Lord, and we see the the return to to Yahweh, the capital L-O-R-D, the the, the tetragrammaton it's called, the return to, to you. To you, if you, O God, if you, Lord, if you were to take account for sin, if you should mark iniquities, to use the psalmist's language, he gives us a rhetorical question. Oh, Lord, who could stand? Switching again to Adonai. My Lord, who could stand? Recall Adam and, and Eve as they were sent into the garden. You see, they could not stand after they were disobedient they were what sent out of God's presence recall Isaiah as he is commissioned to ministry the coal has to touch his lips the burning coal to cleanse him or recall Elijah as he encounters God Elijah has to turn and cover as God passes by Or recall Moses on the mount. He has to shroud his face in God's presence. Or recall the Ark of the Covenant. The rule, the big one, don't touch it. For you will die. Recall what happens as it is being returned. David is dancing and he's happy, but then something bad happens. It falls. David isn't the most wise in how he decides to transport this Ark of the Covenant back. And it falls. And a faithful, well, he seems faithful, servant, out of his, probably the goodness of his heart, tries to catch it as it falls to the ground. And he touches it. And he's dead. 
this person in the procession is dead for reaching out and trying to catch the ark as it's falling to the ground. Recall the high priest's cleansing process he had to go through as he enters into the most holy of holies. My point here is, you see, oh Lord, if you should count iniquities, who could stand? The answer is nobody. To be in the presence of God, it took coverings, cleansings, death, quite literally, to enter into the presence of God. None of us, none of us are at a point of of, of perfection in which we can stand in God's presence. Times have not changed. Who of us can stand? None of us can stand in his presence. And this is bad news. This is bad news. Thankfully, praise the Lord, last week we celebrated the incarnation and there is good news that follows the bad news. You see this, this eucatastrophe that happens, this, this phrase, Tolkien's phrase, eucatastrophe, it's a term he made up when, when all is lost, when all seems done. There is only bad, bad things that lie ahead, only death and brokenness and destruction. Then all of a sudden, there's a turn, there's a change. Something sudden and unexpected changes the fortunes of those involved. The eucatastrophe. And you see, that's what we celebrated last week. That the incarnation is this eucatastrophe, this breaking in, this sudden change that alters the outcome. And this is the good news. Verse 4 of the psalmists here. But with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. And you see, you see the eucatastrophe in this text. Saw our verses 1, 2, and 3 are so dark. They're so filled with desperation. And then verse 4. The sudden change. And the tone of the remainder of the psalm is just different. Because there is forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. You see, the forgiveness comes not from us. It's not the psalmist climbing out of his own grave. It's not the psalmist's buddy coming around and saying, hey, you need help. It's not that. The prime mover here. You see, the active agent in the psalmist's salvation is God. And is that not the same with us? That is still the same. The prime mover, the active agent in this man's or person's salvation who is lying dead in the grave. You see, the prime mover, the active agent, is with you. With God, there is forgiveness. You see, Christ in his incarnation, as he came into this world, as he broke in to begin his mission and to begin what he was sent to do, 
He was filled with his active obedience and his passive obedience. He is the prime mover here. He is the active agent in his perfect obedience, carrying out God's law. Doing what Adam was supposed to do, as I said last week. In his perfect obedience, he's going to the cross, obedient to the Father's will. You see, in his passive obedience, his life was filled with suffering to pay for the penalty. Jesus, in his active obedience to the Father, in his passive obedience to the Father, is the one. You see, he is the one who pulls us up out of our graves, who delivers us with mercy. As ones who deserve punishment yet receive compassion, that's what Christ offers to his people. We see this mercy, we see this grace. They are given something that they have not deserved, and that is new life. The psalmist is given a new life, pulled up literally, literally out of the depths, as Jonah was vomited up out of the depths, given new life. And as I said, the tone shifts here. So, for us, for non-Christians, <clears throat> I've already kind of hinted at this, recognize your estate if you are not a follower of Christ, you are no different than verses 1, 2, and 3 as the psalmist is crying out in desperation. You are stuck in Sheol, in the depths, in the grave. And that is your greatest need. And if that is true of you as, non, as a non-believer, then as the psalmist does, we repent we seek forgiveness and we cry out to the Lord. For those of us who are believers, as Martin Luther took his little nail and mallet and hammered a piece of paper onto a Wittenberg gate, the first one he wrote on that piece of paper was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Our repenting days have not finished. You see, we are not ones who, with the Wesleys, hold to this perfect obedience that we have come to achieve. We still are in a fallen estate. We still know the little ugly things that creep up in our minds and in our hearts and the wickedness we are still capable of. And we are intended to live a life of continual repentance. Our lives are still marked by sin. Yet, the eucatastrophe has still come. The good news has still arrived. And thankfully, praise the Lord, that is the life we are living if we are indeed in Christ. Yet our lives should be marked by this repentance. And two... Our lives should be marked by service and worship. The psalmist says here at the end of verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. There's not forgiveness just so you can say, hey, thanks, I'm good, see you next time. Thank you. 
That's not forgiveness. That's not repentance. Our repentance, turning away from sin, walking towards the Holy Father. You see, our lives then are to be ones that are defined by fear of the Lord. This reverence, worshipful reverence of our God. And so in this, in this redemption, in this salvation, in this new life, our lives are characterized by reverence and worship and service to Him. Because it is our God who is worthy to be looked upon as master. It is our God and his mighty and marvelous deeds who deserves to be worshipped and feared with great reverence and awe. Verses 5 and 6. In our forgiven state, we watch and we wait with great hope. With great hope for the final fulfillment of God's word and his promises. Verses 5 and 6. I wait for for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Three times the psalmist writes that his soul waits. That he waits. The repetition you see is important. Twice he says he waits as the watchmen wait for the morning. He's making a point. He's trying to repeat himself to emphasize where he's at. His waiting. And we hate that word. It's not just the little five, six, sevens, eights, nines in here who hate waiting. As Christmas morning comes and it's 6 a.m. and we say, wait. It's not just them. I don't like the word wait. And I know for a fact that you don't like the word wait. But this psalmist, in his faithfulness, does just that. And we, too, have to do just that. He waits. My soul waits. What is he waiting for? Why is he waiting? I believe personally he's waiting for the full and final return and consummation of God's kingdom. He's waiting for the promises of God to come to pass. And that so too is true of us that we have to wait. one point in time this psalmist was crying out from the depths now he is waiting in full hope in full anticipation of what is to come you see this is pre-christ he he might know the the promises of the pentateuch of the the promises that were given in those first five books of Scripture. He might know the the proto-evangelion, the first gospel presentation, as as Eve was told that your child will strike the head of the serpent and destroy it. And maybe this psalmist is waiting on those promises to happen. 
waiting faithfully for the Messiah. There's always a remnant in Israel. We discussed that last week. This remnant of people faithfully waiting for the promises of God to come to pass, and that includes the promises of the Messiah. They are waiting faithfully. And you see, we now are on the other side of that timeline, 0 B.C. We've passed that point, and now we, we see in the background, we, we can look with 2020 vision to see the Messiah who has already come, but we still wait as we wait for his coming back. But we know those promises too. We know those promises that he's given us. And we look ahead and we, we wait. We wait with hope as the watchmen wait for the morning. You see, the watchmen, you can imagine them sitting out on their guard towers in the pitch black. They don't have fancy electricity. They can't see what's going on out in the distance because there's convenient lamps lit way down. They don't have that. They don't know. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for who knows when the enemy comes. And when the enemy comes, guess what? They are the ones that are there. They're waiting. And they are waiting and ready for the morning because in the morning, that's when their rest comes. That's when their post is free to be left. They know that they can, they can go then take a nap. I spend many, many hours out on a soccer field. And when it's 95 degrees on that turf, and I've been there for 17 hours, sometimes that, maybe not 17, 12 is de definitely possible. I've been there. I know what it means to look forward to going home. To lay on the couch, put on some West Wing or who knows what. I know what it's like after that long day. And so these watchmen are waiting, in the waiting for the morning. They're waiting for their food and for their drink. And like I said a minute ago, they're waiting for their safety. Because then as the sun comes, they can see there is no enemy coming. They're waiting to live and work another day without war and fighting. And so we wait. We wait. I'm not going to read this, this um, parable from Matthew for the sake of time, but Matthew 25, 1 to 13. The bridegroom, he's gone. It's wedding day. The bridegroom is gone. He's waiting. To, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come back with his party. It takes a long time. He delays. And so the ten virgins are there waiting for his return. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. There's an old hymn that has that phrase in it. And so they are waiting and waiting and waiting. And some of those virgins, they wait. They keep the oil coming. They keep their lamps lit. And they wait faithfully for the coming of the bridegroom. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. They're waiting. And he comes and finally they can celebrate because they've been up and ready and anticipating, and waiting. But there's other ones there. There's five other ones, I believe it is. They don't mend or mind the oil. They don't pay attention to what they have to do. They aren't focused on the bridegroom coming. They're instead more focused on their tiredness. And so they let their lamps burn out, and they miss the arrival of the bridegroom. This is us. This is, 
This is what the psalmist is waiting for. He's waiting for the promise to happen, for the return. So it is with us. We are waiting. Are we waiting with the oil in our lamps, faithfully living a life dedicated to our Lord and Master, or have we fallen asleep and have we given up? Are we persevering? That's the word. Are we persevering for when he returns, for when the Lord returns? Will he find us ready and waiting or no? Will he find us not walking in faith? The psalmist, he knows. He is waiting, anticipating, eagerly looking forward to the coming promises as the watchman waits he too is waiting earnestly. Lastly, verses 7 and 8, our great hope then is founded finally and fully in the qualities and character of our God. Our hope, what we are clinging to, the reason we can cling to our hope is because it resides is rooted, is anchored in the one who has given those promises. It is rooted in who he is. And that is why we can wait in hope. There's a shift here in verses 7 and 8 compared to 1 through 6. The subject of the psalm has changed. Verses 1 through 6, the psalmist is writing of himself. Verses 7 and 8, now the psalmist is writing of his people. O Israel, you see he's calling, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This, this shift from I to proclaiming to Israel. He's turned into an evangelist here. Oh, Israel. He's addressing the assembly. He's calling out to his brethren, to the people who reside in his community, those around him who have the expectation of walking faithfully. These people who have the same rules and laws, who may not be walking in those rules and laws. We don't know when this psalm was written, if it was pre-exile or post-exile. There's theories for both arguments, of course, as there always is. We don't know which. But if this is pre-exile, maybe just before the exile happens, or as things are crumbling like they were in Isaiah's day, we could see this psalmist calling out to Israel to be faithful. If it's post-exile, if they are already gone and taken, the psalmist could be crying out to his people to return them to the laws and rules. We don't know, but he's addressing the people. He's calling his people to faithfulness. He's calling his people to perseverance because he has confidence in perseverance. Because he is confident. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. You see, with the Lord, in his character, in his attributes, in who he is. I'm going to read this portion 
because I think it is important. This is from an old confession. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection. Whose essence cannot be comprehended but by any but himself. A most pure spirit. Talking about his, his attributes that he shares with none. He is invisible without parts or passions. He has immortality. He dwells in light which no man can approach. He is immutable. He is immense. He is eternal. He's incomprehensible. He is almighty. Every way infinite. Most holy. Most wise. Most free. Most absolute. Working all things out according to the counsel of his will. Why? For his own glory. For his own glory. And you see, the promises that he gives are drawn out of who God is. And the, the people, the authors of this confession continue. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression and sin. The rewarder of them, I love this, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, that is, those are, those are character attributes that define for us, give us indications of who God is. And it is in those attributes that we can, we can trust these promises that are coming, that, not a, that he has made and are coming still. You see, it is out of his character. It is because of who he is with the Lord, with him, with who he is, there is steadfast love. Unwavering. His love doesn't shake. If you are in his flock, if you have been called by his, his, his son, there is no shaking in his love for you. He's not, there's, there's nothing in him that is unsure of how he feels for his people. He's unwavering. Unlike us, he's, he's not tossed about by the tumult and the stresses of our lives. His love is steadfast. And in him there is plentiful redemption, the psalmist says. You see, flowing out of him his, his attributes, flowing out of who he is, flowing out of this love and this grace and mercy and goodness, there is an overflow, an abundance of grace and redemption towards his people, for his people. And he will, it says. Remember I said last week in Psalm, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord will do this. That's how Isaiah completed that thought. The psalmist here, he will redeem Israel. He will redeem his people from all their iniquities. 
He will cleanse them. He will cleanse us. He will buy us back. This redemption, this redeeming quality of purchasing one back. Purchasing one out of bondage. Purchasing one out of slavery. Purchasing one out of their brokenness. And the psalmist says, the Lord will do this. The Lord will do this. So let us, let us be a people whose lives, like the psalmist, can be transformed from I, the subject, to them. As the psalmist goes and he tells the people, O Israel, O Middletown, O Louisville, there is a God. Let us be a people who are evangelists like the psalmist turns here in his confidence in who he has been called to be and who he has been called to. Let us have, like the psalmist, a confidence and an assurance in our standing. Assurance is... Assurance, I think, is something that often haunts Christians. They don't know. They struggle. Have I been good enough? Am I, am I faithful enough? Do I love Jesus enough? Have, I cannot be assured that I am in God's flock. I've talked to many, and I've heard many stories of people who are tormented by this idea of assurance. There are some believers out there who will even boldly tell you, you cannot have assurance. But I think that's incredibly wrong. I fully and completely believe we can have assurance. Will we wrestle? Oh yeah. We're still in this flesh. We're still residing here. But why? Why can we have assurance? I'll tell you what. It's not because of who you are. You cannot have assurance because of who you are. You have assurance because of who God is. You have assurance because of who he is. Those things that I just read from that great confession, the authors of that confession pulled them out of scripture. You can go look at the proof texts and find for yourself those characters, characteristics and attributes and qualities of our God. But it is in who God is that we can have assurance of who we are. Our assurance is rooted in God's character, not in ours. Our assurance is rooted in who he is, not in who we are. He is the unwavering one. He is the one who is not flippant and tossed about. He is the one who doesn't change his mind and go to plan B. He is the anchor. He is the firm foundation. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem his people. He will redeem his people. And so, we wait, we watch, we look, 
we lift our eyes above our present circumstances and look towards the kingdom, the citizenry, the, the, the people, uh, the citizens of the kingdom that we are called to be. We look above our present estate and fix our eyes upon the kingdom and the king who resides in the kingdom because he is the sure and steady foundation. He is the assurance. He is the one who calls us and pulls us out of the grave with new and abundant life. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are merciful and you are gracious, Lord, to us. So, Lord, let us by your Spirit, live lives dedicated fully and finally to you, fixed and firm in our great foundation. Lord, we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.